sense that there are some dimensions of life that are beyond what we can see or what our eyes or what we can touch with our hands. We feel a sense of being overwhelmed. We, we go up in the mountains and we just get overwhelmed by the view. Or we watch a beautiful Montana sunset in the summer because you're not out, supposed to be outside in the winter. And it's just beautiful. And you're moved. You, you feel something. You, you feel like there is something more to this. That is what the book of Revelation is trying to tap into, that there is an unseen world and God invites you into that story as you go through the book. Now, this book attracts just a little bit of attention uh, from, from people. It also repels people. It repels people because of how uncomfortable uh, it feels at times. Maybe you feel repelled because of how confident others are in their interpretation of Revelation. I saw a poll recently that said Revelation for Christians is the scariest book to read because they don't even know what it's about. But it attracts people too. There is an entire industry that is making money out of this book. You, you don't see conferences on, let's do the book of Galatians. I mean, we have done that at this church, but you, know, but you don't typically see, let's do Galatians. But if I said, we're gonna host a prophecy conference for three days on the book of Revelation, the whole town would show up. People would be interested. So what are we to do? Let's get some basic info out. See verse one. This book was authored by a person named John. Verse one. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, the near unanimous view is that this is the apostle John. People point to the similar language uh, between John's gospel and John's letters. And so people say because of the common language and the timeline sort of works, this is John, the friend of Jesus, John, the author of the gospel of John, John, the author of the letters, John who knew Jesus while he was on earth. But you know what? It's not really that clear. If it was clear, everyone would say it's this person and not everyone thinks that. There's nothing definitive that says this is the Apostle John. What we do know is this guy is so well known that all he has to say is from John and everyone goes, yep, that's from John. So he's well known. It could be the Apostle John. It doesn't really matter at this point. When was it written? Again, it depends. Most accept the view it's written in the 90s, which would make John a very old man. This is 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it can be helpful to kind of piece this together because it means it was written during the reign of a man named Domitian. Domitian was crazy. Every religion around Rome, except for Rome and Greece, elevated their emperors to God status. And then sometime in the first century, two Roman uh, emperors decided, you can actually call me a god when I die. So around 68 AD, Domitian's dad gets called back to Rome. He's sieging Jerusalem at the time, Vespasian. He comes back, he becomes emperor. Then his son Titus becomes emperor. Then the younger brother becomes emperor. So here comes Domitian, and you can just picture this, the younger brother with no military experience and no Senate experience, and he has younger brother syndrome, and he overcompensates. And one of the ways he overcompensates is in his insecurities to say, you may now call me a God while I'm alive. And so six out of the seven cities that this, this letter gets written to 
have these temples where the emperor is worshiped and called God. This becomes a problem for Christians as Christians begin to be persecuted over this very thing, this temple worship, this refusing to call Caesar God. So that's the intro points. That's enough of that. Point one, this book is meant to be a blessing. (laughs) Do you ever read Revelation and think that book is supposed to be a blessing? Verse one through three. Here is where we get the name of the book, the revelation from Jesus Christ. Some of your translations will say of Jesus Christ. Revelation is the word apocalypse. Now, this is just a little side comment and it doesn't really matter that anyone does this, but I hear so many people refer to this book as the book of revelations. It's not. It's the book of revelation or it's the revelation of Jesus Christ or it's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That's, there you go, little side comment. If you say it wrong, no one's gonna judge you, but get it right. It's the book of revelation. Okay, revelation means that the truth of this book reveals God's truth. Look at the order. God gives his revelation, verse one, to Jesus so that we, his servants, can know what must take place soon. Jesus makes it known to an angel and an angel comes to John and reveals the revelation to him. So this is a revelation from God to Jesus, to an angel, to John, and the angel is going to take John through the image. Now, how does it get revealed? John testifies, look down, at what he saw. So verse one, it's made known. How is it made known? By communicating to John what he sees. And what does he see? He sees symbols. And these symbols, verse two, are the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The word of God appears seven times in the book of Revelation. That'll be important later. And in all of those instances, the word of God is what Christians are supposed to hold on to as they're under duress. And the testimony of Jesus Christ, that this is the word martus, which we get the word martyr. He is going to be the faithful uh, witness and bear testimony. Now, symbols are meant to take us off guard. They are meant to communicate truth in a different way. Symbols tell us in revelation of a heavenly world that we do not see with our eyes, a heavenly world that is meant to shake you. And what do I mean by shake? I mean, it's one thing for, for us as Christians to be like, that's a sin and that's a sin. Uh, you know, like we have 10 commandments or these lists and then we go, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I'm supposed to do this and you just kind of check it. And plus our general nature, right, is to say, if someone lies, you go, oh, you're a liar. But if I lie, you go, it's complicated. You know, there's some story like, you just kind of catch yourself a break, but other people, it's like, no, the, the judgment of God down on them. But then here comes Revelation, like chapter three. This is written to Christians. These are the words who him hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Think about that. The church's greatest accomplishment is that they've fooled people into thinking they're on the right track. This is the church you would recommend. This is a church that you would think alive and well. And yet Jesus in his heavenly judgment goes, you're dead, wake up. This comes right after a letter to another church. That church is tolerating a woman named Jezebel. That's quite a symbol. Later in the book, Jezebel's writing on a beast. The beast is the devil himself. And so Jesus is saying to this church, you are riding on the 
on the beast, which is the devil himself, with Jezebel, repent. You see how that's a lot different than do not sin? It's a symbol. It's meant to, wow, I'm riding with Jezebel on a beast? That's kind of intense. Symbols have a way of shaking us. Revelation is different than most of the Bible, and that's important. This is not a parable. This is not a poem. This is not a chronicle of history. This is not a sonnet. It's not satire. It's apocalypse. It's apocalyptic. That's what makes Revelation so different than most of the Bible. But in the first century, they would have known exactly what this is. This isn't strange. This is a kind of literature they knew. They were not trying to figure out the book of Revelation like it was the daily wordle puzzle or something. They knew it was clear. I mean, think of the understanding the book of Revelation like learning a new language. You, some of you have done this and you've just broken your brain and have to do it. You throw yourself into a place where the language is spoken and it forces you over and over again to speak and think and speak and think and speak and think. And eventually it just becomes somewhat second nature. Now you're dreaming in it. Now you're thinking in it. And now you're speaking in it. This, this is true of apocalyptic literature, but what makes it so hard is that this language hasn't been spoken for 2,000 years. And so you have places in Daniel, and you have places in Zechariah, and you have places in Ezekiel, and you have places in Isaiah, and they all are this same kind of literature, apocalyptic, always written in a time of crisis, generally the same message, very black and white. There is no nuance in apocalyptic literature. You are of God, you are of Satan. You are in, you are out. The world is not real. In what you see, the world's going to disappear. The real world is the world, word of God. And therefore, you need to live in light of the revelation God is going to give. So God's word, this revelation, stands in judgment over our words. God's word is reality, our word is not. God's word brings light, our word brings confusion. He breaks in reality into our lives, and that is what revelation is. That's what this word means. It's God's way of speaking revelation to us. Now, one little side comment that's important. Your interpretation is not God's word. My interpretation is not God's word. God's word is God's word. We often find ourselves corrected by God's word. I, I'm not teaching revelation the same way I would have taught it five years ago. I've been correct. I'm trying to study. I'm trying to delight in it. And so it's not just me and the Holy Spirit. And I, that, that's it. I figured it out. It's reading it with others. It's reading it with people throughout history. It's reading it with our friends. It's reading it by myself. And so I am delighting to teach you this and my interpretation is subject to God's word. So I bring myself under the authority of God's word and I find it correcting myself over and over and over again. Revelation will teach us that if we are not building into our hearts uh, the value of God's word, we will be valuing the world's word. They are in competition. God's word stands. The testimony of the book of Revelation contradicts the world in every single age, in new and fresh wage. The world judges things and God judges things. And Revelation sets them in opposition to one another. No nuance. And in, without Revelation, we would not know how things play out. 
So there is a way to cut through the confusion of the book of Revelation once you learn to speak the language. There are essentially, I mean, there's like 7,000 themes, but let me just tell you two in the book of Revelation that appear over and over and over again. One is this, the sovereignty of God over the suffering and victory of the saints. The suffering, sovereignty of God. So God is still in charge. The book of Revelation is gonna do it over and over again. God is in charge. God is in charge no matter what you see. And the saints live the vindicated life the same way Christ did by dying, by suffering. He stands over the kings. The demonic agents that carry out the destructive judgments are in the hands of God. He controls them. He can stop them at any point. And here's theme number two, the futility of Satan. Satan knows his time is short. Satan knows the battle is over. He comes up to fight the saints and there's not even a battle. And then it just goes, and then Jesus wins. It's futile for him to fight, and yet he does. And therefore, we need to act accordingly. That's the revelation. That, that is this word, the apocalypse. It's God is revealing himself in symbolic form in a fresh way in order to go mm, to all the Christians. Now, in light of saying God's word brings clarity, let's talk about the confusion. <laughs> Uh, I laughed this week when I read G.K. Chesterton's comment on Revelation. If you want to just a laugh, read G.K. Chesterton. And though St. John the evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> and though St. John, that was my reaction, the evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. There are essentially four ways Christians have interpreted the book of Revelation. And they're just worth mentioning because they're gonna come up over and over again. I'm taking you to class in order to give you kind of a handle on the book. The first one is called the preterist view. The preterist view means before. That is the book of, this might surprise some of you. The book of Revelation is about everything in the past except for the last two chapters. It is about the fall of Jerusalem in highly symbolic terms. Now, some people would say actually it was written before 70 AD looking at the fall of Jerusalem. And other people say it's written after 70 AD looking back at Jerusalem. This is the dominant view in America in the 19th century. I don't know very few people at all that hold that today. They exist, I'm sure. I know they exist. I've got one friend. Second view, historicist view. It's that this book lays out in symbolic terms all of church history. So the reformers in particular, Luther and Calvin and all those guys, they would read, hey, the whore on the seven hills, that's obviously the Roman Catholic church. And now we're in this period of revelation. What's so interesting about this view is that it's always church history in Europe and America and nowhere else. And it doesn't really take into account how the first century readers would take it. The third view the idealist view. This is the majority view. It's that revelation is a symbolic presentation of the battle of good and evil, and that the symbols are for every age throughout history, and that the book is not historical events, but timeless truths. This is the majority view. And then the last one, the one you're probably most familiar with, the futurist view. That is the view that revelation after Revelation 4.1, 
is a book about the future. It is chronological. It is applicable to the first century in some sense, but it's, all, it's applicable in the future moving forward. And this is the dominant view in the United States among Christians today. It wasn't a view at all until the 1830s. Isn't that interesting? And yet because of prophecy conferences uh, and the Left Behind series, which popularized this view, this is the dominant view today. If you are from a Bible church or from a non-denominational church, that's the view. It's futurist. So what are we going to do with all of that? Let's talk about the symbols really quick. First is that you need to not look forward, but backwards. And what I'm referring to is the Old Testament. The book of Revelation doesn't quote the Old Testament a lot, but there are somewhere between 200 and 1,000 allusions to the Old Testament in this book. It is filled with illusions. It's filled with imagery from the Old Testament. So if you want to understand the book, don't pick up the newspaper or go online to a website. You have to look at the Old Testament. The least helpful way is what I would call the newspaper approach. A friend of mine told me a story of going to a conference in the 1960s, and the preacher was confidently saying that the locusts were actually Russian tanks. Some of you may have heard that the locusts are Black Hawk helicopters, or that 666 is Ronald Reagan, or a credit card, or a chip implanted, or a Microsoft program. Listen, it's none of those things, and how do I know that? Because every symbol comes out of the first century, and if it doesn't make sense to them, it's not an option. So the question you have to ask are, what do these symbols mean to the first century reader? And when you ask that question, you lose the modern day newspaper approach. Let's talk about numbers. Seven is the number of perfection. I've already mentioned that. The word of God is mentioned seven times. The number four is a number of cosmic completion. There's the four corners of the earth, the four regions of the earth, the tribe, tongue, language, and, or nation, and people, four times. Certain names of Christ are repeated, and God are repeated in four and seven. Lord God Almighty, seven times. The one who sits on the throne, seven times. Christ appears seven times. Jesus appears, the word appears 14 times. The Lamb of Christ appears 28 times. The seven spirits, which is the Holy Spirit, occurs four times. You see the numbers? There is no numerical pattern for Satan or the beast or the false prophet. Babylon the Great is mentioned six times, potentially to align itself with 666, which just means you're not 777. You just aren't quite perfect. And 12 is the number of God's people. All right. Enough of that. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ in symbolic form meant to bless. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written because the time is near. So the word blessed, we hear that word a lot, right? The word blessed just means total fulfillment. It is someone who lacks nothing. In a sense, the entire Bible is about how do I experience this deep and abiding happiness and fulfillment? Jesus picks it up in Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Now, what's the blessing here? Blessed is the one, so that's a singular, or him, who reads to, and those, plural, who hear it. This is actually a church service 
And in chapter 22, you actually get this even more clearly and a sort of liturgy breaks out in Revelation 22 and it seems to be a celebration of the Lord's Supper. So reading a scripture publicly was part of the worship service. So what you have to picture is this is mail that is going to seven churches and someone's carrying it and he says, okay, everyone gather. We're going to hear the revelation of Jesus Christ and they open up what must have been a massive scroll and they read it. And then he goes to the next church and he reads it. Reading aloud of scripture was common. We're told, like in Acts, Moses is read every day in the synagogues. At the end of Colossians, Paul tells them, have this letter read to the Laodiceans in Colossians 4.16. So this person would have been an officer of the church. This person would have been able to read. And the reading just wasn't just for their enjoyment, but for their application. That's why he says, to hear, which means to obey, or to keep. In other words, if you didn't if you didn't quite understand to hear, let me like repeat it for you, to keep or to take to heart. So there, this is application time. That's what revelation is. You're supposed to listen to it. Blessed is the one who reads it. So the guy I read this morning, Logan, he should be blessed reading it. And those of you who hear it should be blessed as you keep it and take it to heart. So what are they gonna take to heart? There are, guess how many blessings there are in revelation? Seven. What are they? It is the blessing of inheriting the new heaven and new earth. I'll show you the last two in Revelation chapter 22. Look, 22, seven. I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written on the scroll. 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. So what's the blessing? Do you see? The blessing is that they may Eat of the tree of life. That's the tree that Adam and Eve spurned when they spurned God. And now anyone who keeps the words and wash their robes now get the blessing of what? Inheriting the new heavens and the new earth. You quickly realize that we are not supposed to sit down and color code this book and map it out in charts, but in the end, fall down and worship him Keep the words doesn't mean figure out the end times. It means adjust your life because this is happening. Okay, point two, the one who gives the blessing, verse four through eight. So John breaks out in praise and he starts with the Trinity. I hope you enjoy the symbolism of this book because it's awesome. Uh, I'm just, every once in a while, I'm just gonna be like, this is awesome. Grace and peace to you, from him who is, was, and is to come, from the seven spirits before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So who is dealing out the blessing? Three people, person one, him who is, and was, and is to come, person two, the seven spirits before his throne, person three, from Jesus Christ. Let's do each one. Person one, he who is, and was, and is to come. This is a flip of what it should be. When people talk in this way, you should be him who was and is and is to come. But the emphasis is he is now. He is, is, he was, and he is to come. That's on purpose. The second one, the seven spirits of God. What's the number of seven? Perfection. This is the sevenfold Holy Spirit. 
Some people think it's angels. It's like, you know, 10% people, 90% think it's the Holy Spirit. Let's go with Holy Spirit. And then the last one, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful martus, faithful martyr. Up until this point, martus just meant giving an account in court of what is true. And starting in Revelation, there was a transition in what this word meant. So, you know, you may read church history and you may go, man, why did Justin Martyr name him that way? What a terrible way. Well, it just, that name just meant he, witness, faithful witness. And so Jesus and Revelation changes it to mean a faithful witness by giving an account in death for what is true. He is the firstborn from the dead. This is also uh, repeated in Colossians 1. Paul quotes a hymn of the early church. He's the firstborn. And if you've been around Jehovah Witness, they'll say, see, Jesus was created. He's the firstborn. But firstborn doesn't mean like created. Firstborn means preeminent. For example, Psalm 89, 27. And I will appoint him, this is speaking of King David, to be my firstborn. So he's not the firstborn, he's appointed to be firstborn, the most exalted king over the earth. King David isn't even the oldest son. <laughs> he's just the preeminent one. And here for Jesus, lots of people have already been raised from the dead. What Revelation is saying is he is the preeminent one. He is the firstborn. So not firstborn as in created, firstborn as in preeminent ruler. He is the king of kings. He holds, he's already ruling. He has authority over them. Caesar says he is Lord of Lords. Jesus gives him the heavenly vision that no, I am Lord of Lords. So we have the Trinity. And then we have an expression of love. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He is not a callous ruler. A lot of people talk about the love of God. They say things like, I feel so loved. And it's usually about circumstances and they're very subjective. But what is, what is the ultimate proof of God's love? Verse five, he loves us and frees us. The ultimate proof of his love is the death of Jesus. It, it keeps coming up over and over again in Revelation. It is central to the expression of God's love. This is very similar. If you know your Bibles, it sounds very much like what Paul says in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen. If you're considering Christ, let me tell you where to start. It's right here. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you find yourself saying things like, I wonder if Christianity fits with who I am, you're going about it the wrong way. You're treating this like it's a preference, like it's a piece of clothing you can put on and then take off if it doesn't match your style. What you need to ask is, was he crucified? Did he rise? And if he did, man, I can't play around with this. That, that's it. That's the Christian faith. Did, did, was he crucified? Did he rise? And if he did, I need to stop playing around. The cross is the gravitational center by which all other things in the Christian faith revolve around. It is the gravitational center of the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. And all this other stuff is just orbiting. You know, our entire culture tells you, you have to be unique. You have to prove that you are worthy of love. 
And you know what? That leads to a very insecure life. Here is God of the universe saying, I love you, and I have given myself for you. In Christ, Christ, nothing compels Christ to die. It's unmerited love. And no one has a handle on this or, you know, once you get a handle on this, the, the, the crucifixion, death of Christ, your, your life does not go back to what it was. It just doesn't. The insecurity disappears. You're secure because he loves you. I mean, how committed to God, is God's love? I mean, how like sure of it, how for sure, no matter what is God's love. Here's Paul's words to Romans. I am convinced that neither death nor life or angels or demons or present or the future or any powers or height or depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know what I love about that list is that Paul makes a list and at the end he goes, and everything else. You'll never believe in the death of resurrection until you see your need for it. It's the great explainer of history. Okay, back to Revelation. He loves us, that's present tense. He freed us, that's past tense. So he loves us, he loves those first century Christians and he has broken the chains of our life that have enslaved us. I don't think I have to convince you that your desires enslave you, even for Christians. Your, your desires get you. Your desires, desires tell you what to do. And yet Christ says, I have taken those chains off and I have freed you. And not only have I freed you, verse six, I've made you something. And he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve as God and father. To him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. So he loves us, he frees us, and then he makes us something. And he makes us a kingdom of priests. That's out of Exodus 19. We're all priests in the sense that we mediate God to the world. That's what priests do. They, they mediate God. They explain God. And now he says to the entire church of all ages, you are the priests. Not in the future, right now. You are the ones who mediate the love of God to the world. You're explaining it to people. So the one who gives out blessings, loves us, frees us, makes us priests, and then John breaks into praise, to him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. This book is meant to be a blessing, not confusing. The blessing is from a blesser who loves us and freed us, and last thing, the blesser is coming back. Thank God, verse seven. This is the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus. We'll be talking a lot about this in the coming months. <coughs> I'll just say that if you spend your time trying to guess the time, you actually haven't understood the doctrine. The obsession with figuring it out like it's some sort of reverse Jenga puzzle that you're trying to put back revelation so you can figure it out tells you you've missed the point of what this is about. Verse seven draws on Old Testament prophecy, Daniel seven and Zechariah 12. He comes in the clouds and the Messiah comes and those who pierce will mourn. Let's take each part. The first part's easy. The second part, it's confusing. Okay, first he's coming in the clouds. That's from Daniel 7. Now there are many pictures in the Bible about him coming in clouds. Here's Matthew 24. Then will appear the sign of the son of man from heaven and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. 
And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather the elect from the four winds. There it is again, from one end of heavens to the other. So Jesus coming in the clouds, sometimes we sing it, you know, behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun with the trumpet sound. But Revelation doesn't say through the clouds. He says he's bringing the clouds. And that's important because clouds in the Bible signify the presence of God. And so when it says he's coming in the clouds, it doesn't mean he's in the sky. For example, Exodus 13, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them in their way and by night, a pillar of fire so they could travel. Neither the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night left the place in front of God's people. So what is God's presence? It's a cloud. Here's Exodus 24, giving of the law. When Moses went up the mountain, a cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. When the temple is dedicated, a glory cloud comes into the temple. That's 2 Chronicles 9. Here's Isaiah chapter four, verse five and six. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assembled there, a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. When Jesus comes back, on the clouds, what that is saying symbolically is he is bringing the presence of God with him. And God, when he returns in full presence, will end injustice, will end suffering, will end pain, will wipe away our tears. My favorite verse in scripture, it means he has to touch us. That's what the glory cloud's gonna do. He's coming back. Part two, and then every eye will see him and those who have pierced him and all the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. It's not clear what this means. I'm gonna say that a bunch in Revelation. Why are they mourning? In Zechariah 12.10, the mourning is repentance. Here it is. And it seems to be where he's pulling this imagery from. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look at me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieves bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So what's going on in Zechariah 12? They're repenting. And so it's, some people say, okay, Christ is coming back and repentance will happen because they go, oh, you're God, I repent. But others say they're mourning because they're wrong and they don't like it. This happens in Revelation. Here's chapter 18, verse nine. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury to see, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. They're not weeping and mourning in that situation because they're like, oh yeah, God's right. They're, they're weeping and mourning because they lost. There's no repentance. I lean towards judgment primarily because of the next verse, verse eight. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come. Why drop that doctrine at the end if it's not judgment? The alpha and omega means he is the beginning, he is the end. He is the controller of history and what he says is going to happen will happen. That seems to be judgment language. So when is this all gonna happen? The author just says soon. The idea of imminence and the coming of Christ means primarily for you to evaluate yourself. Like he could come back at any moment. 
And in that moment, will what you're doing be able to stand? That's the point of this second coming of Christ. Will this afternoon, if he came back, this evening, if he came back, how are my plans lined up to his coming? C.S. Lewis writes about this in a essay called The World's Last Night, and he highlights how wrong we, we get the second coming. He says this, we are not the playwright, we are not the producer. We are not even the audience, we are on the stage. To play well the scenes in which we are to be concerned is much more about, a, is not to guess about the scenes that follow. This seems so intolerably frustrating. So many things could be interrupted. Perhaps you're getting married next month. Perhaps you're about to get a raise. You may be on the verge of the greatest scientific discovery. You may be maturing in social and political reforms. Surely God, no good and wise God, would be so unreasonable as to cut this all short. Not now, of all moments. But we think this way because we keep on assuming we know the play. We do not know the play. We don't even know if we're in act one or five. You see, the sure return of Christ is a comfort to people. It's that justice will be met out. Judgment will happen. Wrongs will be righted. But it's also an evaluation for us. And that's why Revelation is written for you to evaluate yourself. It gives you symbols, symbols that you are to keep, symbols that you are to obey. So this year, let's be blessed. Let's be blessed by this book. Let's be blessed as we read it and hear it. Let's be blessed by the one who loves us and frees us and who will one day return. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Lord, what do, you, what do we want to say? Open the eyes to our hearts, Lord. We want to see you. We want to see you high and lifted up. Your people have read the book of Revelation and it is very, very hard. We do not speak the language of apocalypse. Would you help us? And I know that the details are going to be disagreed upon, but help us to see the main thrust of the book that you are sovereign over all of history and that Satan's attempt to attack us are futile. You have won, and we, because of that, we have won.